0: Developers, 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 developers.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Static Void Podcast. I'm Jess Chadwick. I'm Todd Slender, And I'm Chris Gomez. And we are your hosts. We're recording this on the evening of January 11th, 2016. And in this episode, we're going to explore the world of automated software testing. Some call it TDD, some call it BDD, some call it a waste of time. But we just call it a good topic for a podcast. Uh, Before we get into that, Chris, you were talking to us uh, before we started the show about uh, something you did this weekend. You want to talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, this past weekend, January 8th through 10th. I was at the William Penn School District site for the We Connect the Dots Back to School International Hackathon. So that was a huge title, but there were three sites, one in Brooklyn, one in Australia, and we had 12 students here in Pennsylvania who, from the ground up, learned to build a web page and deploy it uh, to Azure web apps using the Git deployment um, support. And so they actually learned GitHub as well. And uh, they were trying to build sites to solve some kind of global problem. One of the sites was about pollution. Uh, another one was about like teen anxiety. And there were actually some great prizes. Uh, some of the teams won Xbox One. Some of the teams won Surfaces. And so the the nonprofit organization that we were uh, putting this on and that we had a site for was We Connect the Dots. And so it's, it's, their site is at we-connect-the-dots.org. Uh, and you know uh-huh. we'll we'll have to put that link <laughs> in the show notes that'll be a lot easier to click in the show notes than to than to say but it was a ton of fun and it was actually incredibly inspiring um to watch how much these uh, middle school and high school students were engaged and wanting to learn how to code
1: that's that's really really awesome how did you get involved with that
0: well uh so yeah the way i heard about it was dave voyles the microsoft evangelist in malvern put a call out to kind of the folks on his little community mailing list saying, hey, we've got this nonprofit organization that would love to host a site here in the Philadelphia area. Do you know any school district that might be interested in hosting? And what's amazing about that is just over the past year, my wife's school district has begun to talk about how they might start involving the community and having technology events on site. It was the perfect marriage. So we introduced their CEO and the school board president, and that's all it took to get the site involved
1: that's great yeah that's that's really cool yeah i've got uh I've got two young girls, and I'm very very excited for when I can start teaching them coding so i'm I'm really eager they're they're way too young just now, but uh I'm really eager to to see when they get when they get started when they're ready.
0: We'll have to put in the show notes a presentation that my five and a half year old daughter gave impromptu about um about her website. And when she started talking to the kids about it, I said, we're not going to be able to shut her up. We're going to just have to stop. (laughs) But I figured it was one of those precious moments and turned on my video camera. So uh, I've got like five minutes of footage and it's up on YouTube. Samantha teaching about her website.
1: There you go. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. All right, cool. So uh, let's get into the show. So Chris, why don't you kick us off? I got a question for you. Do you test? Do you test your software? Do I test my software? So
0: the answer is yes and no. I do a much better job when it's my own side project, although I'm not perfect. And unfortunately, I have found on the job that we don't test our software. And believe it or not, I think I honestly believe that we... Code and then we maybe what you might call smoke test, which is click on some buttons and pages. And oh, I think this works right. It looks like the zip code only takes numbers. And then we ship and we leave it to our customers. Um, that doesn't mean we don't say we QA'd.
1: Yeah. Nice. So you do mostly manual clicking around your application. I, it's pretty much the extent of it.
0: I mean, I've been in a few code bases that had some test suites. One had a pretty extensive test suite, but now here's a great topic for discussion. It never really caught a bug for us. It just, it, they seemed like tests that were a waste of time. Mm. It was the, it was the, it was the tests that maybe there, maybe there were a ton of tests checking to make sure a property was set or that X plus one actually did result in an increment. And that's not usually the functionality that breaks. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. We also, I also was in a code base where we had a huge suite of tests and every time we made a code change, about 30 of them would break. The symptom there was, it was actually a symptom of the fact that code was just really poorly designed and tightly coupled. So if you tried to change yeah. anything, it broke a ton of other code and especially broke the tests. So those kinds yeah, of yeah. things can make developers gun shy. They got burned by it. They don't know what the problem was. They say, well, it's darn it. It's those automated tests. That's the problem. I, I hate that, that, that automated testing. And, and I guess this is really unit testing and like a test driven development style is we made a code change and 200 tests broke. So I'm never doing automated testing again. It's a total waste of time. And that yep. continues yep. the yep. problem, right?
1: Yeah. So Todd, how about you? What's What's been your experience with, uh, with testing in general, in general?
2: Yeah. So um, I think Chris went on a couple of key points of some of what I've seen over the years, which is first and foremost, when you go down the path of using we'll use tdd as an example or where you've created a bunch of unit tests through code sometimes it becomes harder to maintain those tests than it is to maintain the code base and there's a lot of different reasons why that is um i ultimately think a lot of the time the big challenge that developers ultimately have is they're trying to test the you're talking about the wrong things they're testing the fact that if i set a string property it comes back as a string or code they know is is basically built into the, the system like a good example is i worked with a system once where we test a bunch of io stuff hey did we save the file does the file exist okay that we probably need one or two tests but you don't need 40 tests to solve that you've you got to trust microsoft has written the file o class correctly and they avoided the the uh the more critical things um back a long time ago i'm talking mid 90s i worked at a place where we did a lot of what we would call automated testing where we actually were selling the software and we actually charged more for the physical tests. So you could actually, the the end users of the system were scientists and they actually had to test our software when they installed it for FDA and some other rules. So we're like, hey, we'll charge you an extra 300 bucks because here's a bunch of automated tests. Which they're all like, great, this is awesome. We can totally, we want all this. And of course, the owner of the company is like, maybe we should have charged $5,000 or something for these tests. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the problem was not the test. It was the test plans we created. The, uh, this was one of the first programs I ever worked in Windows, and the person who created the test plan obviously didn't understand Windows work either. They thought it was important to test every letter in the alphabet, upper and lowercase, 30 times because every text nice. field could take 30 characters in. So they of of just testing the max length. No, we had to test capital W, lowercase w. And it would just end up becoming thousands and thousands and thousands of line of test code to basically test the fact that the Windows keyboard worked. Um, and people loved it. They're like, this is great. We know everything works. We know that we type a W and it works. And it's like, that's not real testing. Oh, by the way, yeah. let's not – we forgot to test all the calculations, which figure out the actual yeah, – the uh, business logic. Uh, the business logic of what you're trying to do. <laughs> right. But we made sure those Ws right. worked. Um, right. So I've always come from the, the camp. We, we talk about TDD. I think a lot of people miss the point of TDD. They think writing the test is the point. And I, I just take it a totally different thing. When you talk about TDD to me, it's about writing better software. By writing tests, you are helping validate the fact that you are writing better software because you're proving it to yourself. Um, ultimately I think what's gotten lost and it's interesting. We talked about automated testing. I've worked at some places where we've tried to have quality assurance, which I think is more important than testing. And when you talk about quality assurance, what you're really basically saying is, here's how we build software, right? Here's all the parts involved in building the software. We're going to validate that we follow the process we defined, and then we're going to validate the software works as it's intended. So you start out with the application. What's one of the first things you always do? You are basically, you define the requirements, right? Right. I'm going to put a screen, and it's going to show a list of customers, right? Well, that's what you should be testing. When I bring up that screen, do I see a list of customers? And then maybe other more arbitrary rules. But the first thing most developers don't think about was, well, I have to go to the database, right? So I need to test going to the database. Well, that's fine and all, but once you've done that once, it's kind of going to work again, right? You should really be thinking about it from the end user's point of view. And uh, I think, Jess, you mentioned in the beginning something called BDD, uh, behavior-driven development and i'm far from an expert at it and and maybe you guys have a better description i think that was trying to capture that that higher level of thinking about the business use case of what is the end user's goal kind of i think it was trying to try to trying to drive back to the idea of a user story
0: yeah no i agree but, with you i mean i think that um sometimes depending on what your audience is you get run down the wrong rat hole of testing so you know the test driven development ideal was some of it was born a little bit out of like extreme programming, right? The idea that if you have the tests defined, then you go write the code, and then the tests pass, well then you must be done. Like that was kind of the basic yeah. philosophy. You must be done because the tests pass. But that only that only really helps the developer decide if the logic in the code is sound. Therefore, it might be useful for you to determine, and I'll use a dumb example, if your job was to write a string reverse function did it actually reverse strings but that doesn't help the business decide whether the form is showing the right information At the right time. You, yeah because to be honest the user doesn't care that the customers came out of a database i think that was kind of your point the developer starts thinking about the underlying layers but the business just wants to see the correct stuff on the screen that's the functional behavior test yeah
1: we we, th- we threw out a, a bunch of different Kind of yeah. terms and everything, we just kind of blew ba- past them. We didn't really define much of any of them. Uh, you know, we talked right. about. You just mentioned functional tests, or some people call them acceptance tests. Um, you yep. know, Todd. Todd mentioned TDD, test driven development, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody actually mentioned unit tests or integration tests. But you know, there's this whole kind of pyramid. Peer- well, there's a pyramid, right? It's called the test pyramid, where you, you know you start you let you, Lay a foundation of you know unit tests where you're testing you're testing those functions that lowest level and you're making sure that that method works that string reverse method works, and then you go up to integration test you make sure those components work together then you go up to that functional and acceptance test level where you're actually testing the system as a whole and making sure that you know the when the user interacts with it and you know they're doing the things that make your company money and that need to to work um that that everything does work right yeah and right when i when i when i talk to teams about this and i explain it to them you know i say that you, as you go further up it kind of it it gets a little more costly to maintain those tests to create and maintain those tests right they they, they tend to be a little more flaky just because there's more moving parts there's more things that can go wrong and they start to kind of get less specific about like if a test breaks you don't necessarily know what what happened what broke right whereas at the lowest levels at the unit test those tests are very specific and so when the tests break you say this is the string reversal test and or even more specific whenever i put in this input in the string reversal this should come out right and so when that test fails well that didn't happen right and it's much easier to kind of figure out what you what you broke but they're all kind of equally important
0: yeah and that's the thing i'm not really advocating for one style over the other. Cause I agree with you. I think that they have different value to different people. I think the unit tests have a ton of value to the developers, the technical people. I just don't think they have a lot of value to the business people because it doesn't, it's meaningless to them. They, they want to know if, uh, the, the incoming message, you know, from a customer is being processed correctly. And that when the same customer then goes and looks at their portfolio. And I, I just mean that in a generic sense. Um, that they're seeing the right information. We as developers immediately start thinking, like, well, did it get in the database right? Well, who cares? That's not. Who knows?
1: What I always say is that if the unit tests fail, then there's no way that the system's going to work, right? Like, if that if that lowest level thing doesn't work, then how is anything else ever going to work?
0: Yeah, but you also said functional tests were important, and I think I think having the functional top layer, the business requirements tests, the ones that say to the business. You said, we agreed that this is what the system must do. These tests prove the system does that. That gives them the comfort that the system works.
2: I think the, I kind of look at it as, as, as all software development, things go in stages. We we had a case in time where we were doing testing, some smoke testing, I'd almost call it in a way. And then over time we started to realize, like Jess was saying, that was hard to maintain. It was hard to replicate, right? If I had a problem getting the same human being to type in the same scenario over and over again became repetitive, right? So we was like, well, let's automate that. And as developers, we're like, it's too hard to automate the UI, or it's, it's it's cumbersome to do that. So let's focus on the unit test, which are important. I think the problem is, at least my opinion, is two things. One is we forgot the other piece, the business logical testing. We focused more on the lower level. The second thing is we get so obsessed with thinking about things like code coverage and did I write these 40 tests today and they all run or when I change something, these tests will break. And then all of a sudden they become hard to maintain and people like, Oh, we'll just ignore those tests or those tests aren't that important. So we'll focus on other tests. I think we've lost quality assurance. We don't define success criteria, right? When a project gets started, the first thing that should be defined is what is the end goal of the project? And then the question should be is how do we validate that? Right? We know we need unit tests. We know we need integration tests. Those are things we know. But every time you write code, are we solving that business problem?
1: Yeah. And I think that's where these these new uh, ideas like BDD, behavior-driven development, come from is that they're more focused on the behavior of the system rather than the low-level functionality. The mechanical that, parts of the system. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of those approaches focus on working with the business and the owners of the software you know the ones yeah. that are actually requesting it and kind of defining those requirements in terms that you can kind of automate them right and and turn them into tests so, so there's like a bunch of tools like specflow or fitness fitness with, Yeah there's all whatever, kinds of whatever, ones out 20, there yeah. yeah where like you can write them in in human language right given when then is is the, yeah. you know, the yeah, scenario right. so given this case when this happens then this should be the outcome or something like that that's literally what you write Right, and then developers can go and they can automate that, so it's this collaboration of understanding the requirements, and then those become those functional functional requirements, those functional acceptance tests almost literally like when when these pass, then the system is ready, presumably, yeah,
2: yeah, or at least hitting the sweet spot more,
1: but my assertion is that just because you have a test or a handful of tests that you know just because we've said that well when when somebody checks out in their cart with an amount of $10, the the payment goes through, you know, that doesn't mean that when they come in with a thousand dollars that it will work. Yeah. Right. And I think that's where those, that, that's where unit tests can come in. Right. You, you use those functional tests to just kind of give a broad overview of, you know, this is the standard use case or the couple of standard use cases and, and, these are the ones that really, really need to work, and then you kind of dive down at the lower levels with unit tests and say okay now i 'm going to give you basically that same use case, but i 'm going to hit that method that checkout method directly, yeah. and i 'm going to pass in a thousand different values and you know make sure that 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 they work, make sure that it works with negative yeah. numbers, make sure it works with zero, make sure it works with a million you know or t- Forget about makes it works is, is yes <laughs> is subjective right works could just be yeah. throws an exception if that's the expected behavior that works but you know make sure that it handles it appropriately and, and it does what you expect
2: yeah and they should that I think that's that's I think is a lot of times when you brought up before about the the test pyramid right you have integration tests then you have functional tests and then eventually unit tests I think the mistake people make is they focus on one of them and not the big picture. Yeah, and that's what I was sort of was trying that's to drive fair. to is this idea that you need to have this sort of called a roadmap, right? Or end gold. And then you should say, what is the unit test we need to meet that gold, right? We shouldn't be testing the fact that when we call the string property, it comes back unless that's something that makes sense for that. That's actually a driving feature we're trying to do. All right. We should do both. Oh, yeah. and um, Yeah. But we shouldn't just do one. We should focus on the core things and then have the other things, not the inverse.
1: Yeah. You can go overboard. You also mentioned code coverage a little while ago and kind of the pursuit of code coverage. And I I think that can be a red herring too. I mean, that's definitely... You obviously want as high code coverage as possible. Like to have low code coverage is is a bad thing across the board. But just because you have 100% code coverage doesn't mean... That just means that you're executing 100% of your code at least once for one scenario, right? Again, it's not... I do not like the pursuit of that metric. Yeah. So I I agree with
0: you that... (laughs) It is a, it is a sign. Yeah. It is a sign of indicator, quality, right? Yeah. But, uh, so I've been part of a team that pursued a metric basically. And I, I don't know what it was. I don't remember, but let's just say it was 87% code coverage. Given enough time, the gaming begins. I mean, mm-hmm. at first, at first, the team really does meet the metric because it's early in the project. It's easy to meet the metric by just doing your actual work and actually trying to do. A, Quality work. And then as schedule slip and time gets short and the pressure piles on, you go see, like, in order to get up to 87%, you start testing the property returners, right? <laughs> you start testing the getters and setters because it's boosting your code coverage metric. Yes. And, uh, and then once you cross Need that, that finish line mm-hmm. of the metric, then you say, okay, well, then, you know, you, you tell everyone within the code. It, it actually, you might even use it as a, as a form of relief. To say, well, you know, we still found bugs in the system. Ah, but but we met our metrics, so can't blame us. Now you got to go to QA, <laughs> mm, right? I mean, yeah. it's not our problem anymore because we did what we were asked to do. We met the code coverage metric. Yeah. So, so my point is, the game. I, d- I definitely want to
1: get back to that topic later. Yes, <laughs> we'll get back to that.
2: We talk a lot about unit testing nowadays, right? We talk about it here, user groups, and things it comes up, and it's important to do. But there's the old adage that who are the worst people to test their code? Developers, right? I think this is one of the the other red herrings. Is when you write code, ideally you're writing the test first. But reality is most people don't. Right? They, they sort of write the test in conjunction, or they may write them afterwards. You know the success criteria, right? And you're like, "Well, I need to yeah. get 80 percent, so I'm just going to focus on the happy day scenarios. I'm not going to say really focus on the non-happy day scenarios because it's going to give me more work or more grief." So I think there needs a we need to get back to sort of a peer review type of thing. I know some places have tried to practice pair programming, the idea that maybe one person should write the test and one person should write the code. So at least you have that sort of collaborative environment. We talked actually talked a little bit about it when we talk about BDD, how the, the customer would define the test. So I think if you have that sort of level, you're increasing quality. It's not a substitution for quality, yeah. but it is, I think, gets you the end goal much better.
1: Well it sounds like you're talking about it as an either or prospect, but why can't you do both, right? They they can they can both work together.
2: Yes, they definitely could both work to better. I think what's ended up happening is because most people like we just want to have some level of testing. They're like, well we'll just use, we'll just do unit testing. They take the easy path because yeah. unit testing is easy, right? I'm writing the code, I'm I'm doing it, things are I all of a sudden I can meet a metric, but am I really ensuring better quality? Did doing this effort Yeah. Right. Remember, I can say in the beginning, there's a cost, right? I'm gonna to have to maintain this other code, and what happens? Eventually people yeah. realize it's not worth it, so then they lose yeah. they lose the investment they've made and they're like, well, this is too hard now. And then they're totally not testing anymore. It's, yeah. it's the
1: Well let's let's get into that then. Let's so I I even ju- just recently I had this conversation where, you know, in in pursuit of any metric at all, one of the metrics that was tossed around as a judge of you know how how are we doing in terms of introducing automated testing into this organization that doesn't have any? Um, One of them was number of unit tests, raw number of unit tests. And I said that is the absolute (laughs) wrong metric to, to follow because I actually want the opposite, right? I want the highest code coverage with the lowest number of unit tests. I want to write the least test possible because at a certain point, they start to become more trouble than they're worth, right? They they start to become more costly to maintain than they are providing value, right? And so, in your experience, what at what point does that happen? At what point do the do the tests become more detrimental to the project, to the team, to your 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 productivity, whatever you want to call it? Do they become more detrimental than actual actually so beneficial? In my
2: experience, um, I've been in a couple of cases where I consulted where we made a very conservative effort in the beginning of the project, and as the act development was going on, to write tests, talking thousands of tests. We kind of followed the, the TDD mantra to the nth degree, even before people called it TDD. We just said, we're going to write unit tests. We're going to try to test every function. We're going to try to use dependency injection to extract away everything we can do, and we're going to really focus on all the things. And it did help development. It made it easier, particularly um, – When we had people come in and try to start using some of the functionality we were building, we're like, here, just look at the test. It already shows you what you need to do. What ended up happening over time is as the deadline got closer, so it became harder and harder for us to maintain those code, or when new functionality was created, we only had a limited amount of time. So all of a sudden, when we had Mm -hmm. thousands of tests before for things, now all of a sudden we had 20 or 30. And eventually what happened is and we left the project, the customer took it over, and about six months in, they realize, we just can't maintain all this code. So they're like, we're just not going to do it. You start turning the tests off. Yeah. yeah. Or what they ended up doing, I think, is basically they decided not to even deploy them anymore. Because we had the whole, like, you, you deploy code. It would do with all the continuous integration. They're like, we'll just turn the C- CSI out.
1: We'll turn it off. What was the tipping point? Because well, you don't choose to do that on perfectly passing tests. Right. You you choose to stop investing in them. What what investment was having to be made? Why why did they have to worry about them at all? In
2: in this case, what they were doing was we had, we took the application about eighty percent there and they had to start adding more and more features. So they found it cumbersome to as they added new features, they didn't fully grasp everything we were trying to do. So they tried to basically jam some stuff in. When they did that, all of a sudden they lost all the loose coupling and other things that was happening. And since the tests were kind of trying to enforce that, they're like, it got in the way.
0: Right. So they were changing the design and, and that broke a lot of tests more than they were willing to maintain.
2: Yeah. So when the the original development team, which practiced TDD and like, really like you, if you check code in without tests, people came and like talked to you. (laughs) They were very adamant when that guidance and that oversight was gone. They're like, well, We'll maintain it as long as we can. And eventually we'll, like I said, it went through a phase. We started writing less and less tests, new functionality we created. They wouldn't be tests because there wasn't enough time. And eventually as they started changing other things, they're like the code. It's just, it's just not there. There are too many tests to maintain. So eventually I turn them off. So Jess,
0: you asked, when is that tipping point? And it may surprise you, but I've actually, I've been part of a team where it couldn't have been more than three weeks. And the reason why was because from the outset, the code was not easy yep. to write tests for. Um, but even that statement that I just made was very high level for the team. Like that, that statement didn't, was kind of a meaningless thing to say. What statement? That it wasn't designed to be that testable. the code wasn't very testable because yeah. then, you know, some of, some of the response was like, well, I mean, Look, I could write unit tests against it, but then the the code smell of like, well, yeah, you had to mock like six or seven things, you know, the, 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 the constructor injection is out of control here, right? There's (laughs) like you, you, for some reason you think this, this thing, this object needs eight other things to function. Well, that, that kind of tells me we probably don't have the responsibilities, right? But you're in the middle of sprints or maybe, maybe they're not sprints. Maybe you're just in the middle of a calendar. And so that the first thing to go is, is that, uh, because
2: it's causing friction, it's
0: friction. (laughs) But then unfortunately our optimistic nature as developers is like, well, let me just write the code and we'll, we'll worry about the testing later. I I mean, (laughs) look, isn't that how, you know, humans can think. And unfortunately the, the senior management over, you know, that that's overlooking this they don't have the the technical know how or the scars to say like no 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 you you can't do that we'll never recover that that is not a that is not a position you will ever recover from. Do you believe that? I think so. Yeah, I think it's very hard to take an existing code base and wrap a good suite of tests around it such that you can start to have confidence in the code again. I mean, there's a yeah. famous book working effectively oh, with legacy I love code, that. right?
1: Yeah. Working effectively with legacy right. code, we both Michael Feathers. Yeah,
0: like mm-hmm. yeah. that book deals with that problem, right? But it's—I mean, it's—it's it's very painful to try to do. And I haven't seen a success. But then I'm just one person of really trying to wrap a, a quote-unquote legacy code. And we could define legacy code base for the listener, right?
1: I mean, yeah. that's his definition is code without test, tests. Right? Yeah. yeah. Code of that test. Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that definition.
2: So one thing you brought up, Chris, about having all these dependencies that mock it in things. In the case I was talking about, we had quite a few of those. And that was part of the, the friction. They're like, it's just too hard to create a new class, right? They had to inherit from our, our hierarchy of classes. And they're like, this is too much work. We're just going to work around it. And then, like I mm-hmm. said, then all of a sudden things started right. breaking.
1: Yeah, all right, So that design wasn't easy. It may have been testable, but it wasn't yeah, easy to, it's
2: to it's Yeah, it's one of those things that when you're building the system – It works, but once you have everything built, you realize the fact that we had like three hierarchy, three sets of classes of the same hierarchy that were slightly different, but every time you added a new thing, you had to add them all three, it got very brittle.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that just sounds wrong. I mean, I have no idea what you're talking about, but it sounds absolutely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
2: Unfortunately, the people who are were, who were making that decision were swearing by it at the time. And you're like, okay, sure. You're the yeah. expert. We'll follow yeah. what you want to do.
1: That was the one time where testing just completely went sideways for me too, was when we just had a really bad design and we ended up just throwing away the test. We, we ended up going to change the design to make it better, um, which broke a bunch of tests and we ended up just throwing the test away because it was easier just to kind of redo them. Um, than to to change them all to compensate for this this new design or this design change, but when i i 'm actually going through this right now i am I am introducing automated tests to a legacy code base right with a legacy code base has been around right now it 's five years um, Some of the applications have been around longer, uh, but the main one that i 'm working on is is five years, but legacy meaning. Code without tests. This thing had literally no test, functional or otherwise. Right, there were no automated tests. The QA team did not even have automated tests a couple years ago, two years ago. Um, So there were no automated tests on the QA team or on the development team, and so we're we're slowly adding it. And when I introduce this concept to the developers, my my very first slide, like the intro slide, is. You know, you, you came here to talk about TDD. You came here to learn about TDD, which, you know, most people call test-driven development. I call it test-driven design because yep. that's what it's all about. And honestly, for me, TDD, the act of, of driving your development with tests is, is not even about quality like that's, or not even about, you know, automated uh, validation of your quality, but it's more about code quality. It's more about the quality of your mm-hmm. design. And it forces you to have a testable design. It's a byproduct. Right? What you doing? So, Todd, it, it seemed like you were able to, in that project, you were able to go quite a while with a design that really seemed testable until, you know, it got a little bit, it got a lot more classes. It got a little older and, you know, it, it kind of fell under its own weight. But so then I would say that wasn't really truly designed properly right it didn't sounds like it didn't have a separation of so when you were writing
0: what you're working on now to try and say that the tests enforce good design are you taking the approach because this is an approach i like to try and take of i'm now the consumer of the very api i'm creating is it easy to use like if this was some third-party api would i throw it away or am I just forced to use it because it's mine, <laughs> and I have no
2: other choice because it's first? Or party. do I need to read a ten-page document to figure out how to call it?
1: Yeah, that's literally that's the way I think as I write code now. Is you know this is an API that I'm consuming. I may be the only one. You know, my team is the only one that can, that's consuming this API, but it's an API. I like that approach. So let's design it. I really way. like yeah. that approach. Yeah. It's but sort of now, the
2: contract type approach. What is the contract yeah, yeah. or the agreement you're going to have to
1: it? Right, right. And the tests define that contract. They define the rules. They define the interaction. And I also say this, is, this isn't really a reason to do tests, but it's a nice little side benefit is that when you have that test suite and you have a new person that comes on the team yeah. you, and they say, you know, how do you use this? Well, there you go, right? right? There's a bunch of working yeah. code. Nothing beats working code. Absolutely nothing yeah, right. beats working code, right? What parameters do you need to pass into that function? Right there. It literally says it in plain English and then gives you an example, a runnable example that you can attach a debugger to. Right.
0: So do you, do you have a strategy for, you know, getting around the fact that like we humans aren't very good at getting things right the first time? I mean, it's hard to get it right the first time. So I, I get what you're saying that you're saying, well, the tests are guiding me in what I think is the right direction, but Does there, is there a point of no return where you've gotten so far away from the design of that piece that later you realize it needed to do more? I, you know, real life comes in and, or maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe that just means no, you're not writing decoupled solid code yeah. right the solid acronym right
1: so i can get a little more specific yeah it's solid right but even more i can narrow it down even more it's it's the dependency inversion it's the dependency injection part of that the decoupled ty- or, you know loosely coupled decoupled nature of that is that you have components that they can be um they can live in isolation and they can yeah. because they have to live in isolation in order to be tested in isolation Right, And if you just kind yeah. of apply that philosophy in every single component you make, and component doesn't need to be a class. It usually is. Right. But gonna, it can be a set of classes that work together very, very, very closely. But generally, it is just one class, right? And so... If you're applying the solid principles, if you're if you're making sure that that class or that component has that single responsibility and it's not doing a hundred thousand things, right? It's just got that single responsibility and open closed, right? You're designing it in such a way that it's open for modification or open for extension, but closed for modification. Those kinds of things, and you know, we're not going to define how to do that in this podcast, but that's what this drives for me, right? Yeah, sure. But now, what if you what if you suck at it? What There's if you no suck at that? It.
0: And what if that's a lot of developers? Maybe 90%? Maybe me. I, I will point the finger at myself when I say, why do we fail at test driven development or even at having good test coverage? Sometimes I've kind of sat here. Maybe folks listening might have gotten the impression that I'm complaining about other people. Sometimes <laughs> it's my design <laughs> and the code yeah. I wrote. That I come so, back later and say, well now it's brittle and now I've I've broken two hundred tests because yeah, it needed yeah. to change.
2: Yeah. When you have legacy code, I, I look at legacy code as a little more than just stuff that doesn't have tests. To me it's any code that's more than six months old. Because more than likely you don't remember why the hell you were writing that code. <laughs> you might have an idea, but it's many times we've all weeks. looked at code going, who wrote this code? Oh, wait a minute, I'm the blame guy. I got <laughs> right. I'm the one that was the idiot that wrote this code. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Michael Feathers goes on to elaborate a little bit more, and it, he basically says the problem with legacy code is that you're scared to change it.
2: Yes. One thing you can do is isolate it better, right? Which yeah. there's the old adage, just add another layer of abstraction will solve all the world's problems. But if you if you have code, you're going to consume. Like we'll say a database, right? I'm going to call a database to get data. And we know that in order to write a unit test, it's a lot harder to interact with a physical database. P- put a layer of abstraction in, whether it's building a class around it and then focus on the business code. When I first look at a code, I can't test all of it, right? So if I can focus on the key areas and isolate that and then start focusing on those tests, now I have confidence I've changed that code. Once I have that, I can let momentum start going. Okay, well now we can try to figure out how we abstract away, maybe get away from the Indian subtraction. Maybe we move that, sort of push it back further into the design. I think the problem is developers are... Caught up in the game of we don't have time to change code, or we're afraid to change code because it broke, and we have to get rid of that habit. Code should constantly keep changing. Yeah. That's the idea of refactoring. That's true. Refactoring. I, I remember the first few time project I was on, we'd actually have a phase that said refactoring. It's like that's totally wrong. Refactoring is something you should be doing every day. You should constantly. If I'm making changes to code, yeah. I should refactor. It. By writing tests, you're helping yourself validate that you're not breaking things. But it has to be a – it can't be a phase or it can't be a – Well,
0: have you ever heard of the testing sprint that comes oh, at yeah. the end of the project, <laughs> right? And, oh, and it, intuitively, intuitively, I think the three of us would all – like there's something wrong, right? You have yeah. a testing sprint. What? What? There's something just wrong in general. I can't even <laughs> – I just have to use we, the word wrong. We'd
2: all agree, though, that it's better to have that than not have any testing.
0: <laughs> I think what it is, it's almost like a confession that – we actually don't really believe that anything works right. So we're just going to give it another couple weeks.
2: Uh, <laughs> but then I the think... project falls behind and that week. They get cut yeah. off, right? Well, yeah, first we're going to get, it rid, of the, gonna get project, rid of the testing 2A. sprint
0: and we're going to go straight to cert or whatever you might, every organization has a different name, right? Yeah. Pre-production.
1: Well, so what are your thoughts? Let me go, let me go in the other, other direction. What are your thoughts on test first? right? T- TDD, true TDD, when it was originally defined, it, it meant write your test first. But you know, some people differentiate between just test-driven, I, I kind of differentiate, You know, test-driven design, that's, what, that's my acronym TDD, versus test-first. So I can do test-driven design without necessarily doing test-first. In fact, with my team, I actually tell them, I don't really care when you write the test, as long as when you come to me and you say, this feature mm-hmm. is done, it has tests. Right, so that that is part of my definition of done is that it has tests. Whether you wrote those tests literally first before you wrote a line of production code, that would be great. But I don't, I don't really care. But you're not gonna, you know, check it in and say I'm done. I'm moving on to the next thing unless it has tests. So you were
0: saying it might not bother you if the tests are first. But do you think there is a, a maximum gap between the code and when the test finally needs? And I'm actually stealing this from Bob Martin, who's who used almost those same words in a talk. I'll, I'll see if I can find it for the show notes where he said, I don't actually care if you write the test first, as long as if you if you write the code first, then write the test next or vice versa. In other words,
1: he wanted that gap between code and test to be yeah, small.
0: Yeah. Order didn't matter so much.
1: Yeah. Well, for me, for me, the biggest thing is that you're thinking about it, right? You're You're thinking about the design. And then obviously, you also need the automated test in place to to validate the quality as well. That's that's important. For them. But for me, the design is even more important. And so personally, when I'm writing code, I don't use test first. I don't write test first. I will write a decent amount of production code, and then I'll go back and write tests as quickly as possible. But while I am coding, I am thinking the whole time of how am I going to test this? That is my mindset the entire time. So it is a test-driven mentality, Right. It it's not literally driven by tests. I'm not writing the failing test first and then making it compile and then you know satisfying and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. sure. I'm, yeah. I'm writing the yeah. test first in my head. If that makes sense, right? I'm just kind of as I'm coding, I'm thinking about the test that I am passing and then I write it as quickly as possible. And so I, I mentioned earlier, you know, you can't say that that feature is done. I know feature is a pretty vague term. By feature, I mean like a very small chunk, like a day or so work, like a work item, right? A day or so worth of work, (laughs) not a feature as in like 300 classes. But like, you know, you spent the last day or two working on this thing and now you're going to come and tell me that you're done and you need your next task. When you say you're done, the very, you don't tell me you're done, you show me the working test. That's literally the test of being done. And then we'll sit down and we'll do a code review and all the other good code quality things that, that we do as a team. It's all part of that validating that you're done. But the very first thing is like, don't tell me you're done. Don't tell me that it works. Show me the test. The tests So we need more management like that because let me Are tell you, you how me I, think I might be. Here's
0: how I think it goes for a, a lot of developers. And I'm just being serious about this is that sometimes the reason you might not write the test first, one reason you might not, is because like much of the work we do, we have to go explore a little bit to figure out how to do something. Okay. So you explore a little bit and then you kind of get it working. Now the next day, whether it's at standup or just the fact that you walked by your manager's cube are, I think we have this like human instinct to say, Hey, that widget that I've been working on, I've got it working. So now here's the problem. Now that I've said that, that I've got it working which manager is going to say to me what you just said i'm and i'm not it's it's isn't about buttering anyone up it's the truth right most of the time the answer is going to be like well that's great um is it, it did you commit it is it in yeah. is the code uh, if my then next response <laughs> yeah, is like right. if my next response is well no 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 now that i figured it out i need to now <laughs> take another couple of days <laughs> yeah. to figure out how to yeah. properly design this yeah. bit of code and get some tests behind it i I don't know if I've ever been willing to say that. And this is with a lot of experience under my belt, right?
2: Yeah. So so I've run into cases where yeah. I do a lot of estimation for projects. And a lot of developers be like, we didn't include any time for unit testing. I'm like, no, when I say you need to go build the search thing, the estimate is you writing it and then providing the test for that. That's a whole unit of work. I don't, you don't need to have another test that like, oh, 80 hours unit testing. No, no, no. I am expecting that you have tested this. Now, ideally, you'd have a physical unit test that could be run and other things. But if you at least manually test it, that's better than saying I'm done. Because oh, it, it drives me nuts. Every day I, I encounter this. They're like, all right, so where are you at? Well, I'm done. Okay, is it checked in the source control? No, no, no. No, that is not done. Until I can physically get it to my machine <laughs> yeah. and ideally see those tests, it's not done.
1: Yeah, oh, it's part, it's part like, of no, development. It's done, it's done,
2: it's
0: done. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's... <laughs> I think those kinds of things add to the developer stigma of, developers stretching timelines out so if you've got time to work and then you add on the testing sprint and you add on like you said the time to write unit tests unfortunately i look i don't blame senior management for beginning to look down on developers and be like and start to do their own internal padding and all the crazy stuff we know that happens in business of well they told me four months i guess that means eight why why shouldn't they
2: think that right yeah yeah. Or they told me four months, which means they probably padded it. So let's, we'll give them three months. So let's that give them be three enough. because they probably <laughs> padded it. Yes. Yeah. Or all that testing thing they talked about. is not important.
1: Right. Yeah. No. In, the, in several of the teams that I've worked with, when I start introducing testing, and you know they they start adding it to their work items, they'll literally add a task. You know, write the unit tests, and I just say no. It is literally part of the the development process of implementing this feature. Right. You don't have to call it out explicitly.
2: In my experience, too, if you think in that mentality you get better traction. If you have the, let's do the unit testing task or let's have a unit testing phase, it's very easy. Chris talked a lot about management. Oh, the project's behind. We'll just cut that out. Or we don't have time for that. We have to deal with more features. If you develop the good habit of, I'm writing code today. I'm going to write some tests. I'm going to do the refactoring. I'm going to do all these things in my daily work. Then all of a sudden, you start doing it. Because one of the things I've always heard people are like, it's going to take twice as long. And I'm like, yes. yes, the first two times, it will. But once you start thinking this approach, it actually, well, you will write faster code. Maybe. Because you're not spending the time <laughs> yeah. debugging all that code. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> you're going to be like, yes. oh,
2: I need to have this thing calculate something. Great. I'll create 10 tests. Now I know it works. Instead of I've deployed this code to production and now I get a bug report and I'm trying to figure out what the customer did and
1: Yeah, I know. That that I understand where that conversation is coming from and I appreciate why my people ask it and that's everybody's initial reaction, right? You're telling me I have to write more code? I'm I'm writing at minimum double the code, right? The double the lines of code, but I mean, the first reaction to that is, well, writing the code is a small fraction of the time that you're gonna spend supporting it over time, right? So yes. right off the bat, yeah, okay, that doesn't really hold water. But let's say even in this initial development sprint where you have two weeks to get this feature out, I guarantee you, I can pretty much guarantee you that the first time it's not gonna cost you that much more time because it's you're gonna see immediate feedback in terms of it and the debugging phase, right? Even once, even if you do write those bugs, first of all, it's going to keep you from writing bugs or it's going to catch catch them earlier. Keep you from writing bugs because you are thinking a little more critically about it, right? Yeah, so
2: the critical thinking is the key part.
1: The, yeah, the most amazing thing. When I first introduced TDD to my team, I said, you know what? My definition of TDD for the next couple of weeks, don't even write automated tests. Just think about how you would test this code, right? Like, think about it and write down in words what the test is before you start writing code so it was test first development but it was just literally writing down in english you know how i'm going to test this and this is developers and i saw immediate improvement right there just because they're sitting down and thinking critically about what they're about to write and thinking through it rather than just like sitting down and just slamming yeah. the keyboard right and just throwing out code string and variable
2: x equals this yeah so I, i've yeah. done that i've done that quite a few times that sometimes when i create a function you know like i just start commenting and it's almost like notes to myself like hey yeah this is sort of what i want this class to do or function to do this is sort of what i expect the input is it's just getting your thoughts out and there are lots of yep. different ways to do that whiteboards and different things but i think that that mindset helps you start thinking about the test which ultimately is the idea of, of tdd it's forcing you to say i'm going to create this class instead of just blindly creating a class write additional code to validate the class does what i suspect Right. Test. why
1: are you creating that class what is it going to do what what purpose does it serve in your system yeah so how do you know when all of this is working <laughs> uh what, what what kind of feedback do you get what metrics do you get what i think that's you, the, <laughs> has it actually worked <laughs> for
2: i think guys? that's the golden pr- problem right there really is no validation that works right because every software still has bugs so a lot of management were like, well, we've spent all this time running all these unit tests, but we still have bugs.
1: Of course you do. It's software.
2: Yeah. I think ultimately, if you can sort of tie it back to, there are still bugs, but there should be two things. There should be less bugs, ideally. But also, when there are bugs, we have a proven process to tackle them, right? We identify what the bug is. We make sure the unit tests we have cover them. So the next time we introduce more unit tests, if you sort of have that mentality, I think you gain... More traction, but ultimately, it's a, it's. I think it's very arbitrary. People, some people are like, we created all these tests, It didn't work. Let's not sure. do that next time. It was too yeah. much effort.
0: I mean, I think there's a couple ways you can kind of guess that it's working, and one of them is, is that when you do have to go fix something, and your process works to add some tests, solve the problem, and then those tests pass, so you kind of you have a, a high level of confidence. But then there's the other, the flip side of like, maybe, maybe, you know, it's working when it catches what would have been a very serious regression and not by hundreds of test breaking, but by very specific tests whose names actually lead you to mm-hmm. the issue. Oh yeah. That's a very important name. The test to be something meaningful. Yeah. If that <laughs> you know happens, is- if, if, if that whole thing happens to you, it actually should probably be a cause for celebration. And And look, I'm not going to say that yeah, I've really maybe experienced that Zen, but I think, I think if that happened where you had a chance of, of regression, which would have slipped into production, but instead a, a pretty specific set of tests or maybe one, if, I mean, gosh, in the perfect world, one test that said this, this went wrong, that, that would be great. But then I also think when you have that, that bug and you say, well, none, you know, our, all of our tests passed. So what happened? What went wrong? What if you can conclusively show, well, we didn't have tests for it because our requirement wasn't clear, or we'd never really thought about this logic flow? I mean, we're human beings. We map out how we think the business logic should work, but we miss things. So that's okay, too. That's a validation of your process.
1: Yeah,
2: that's what I was yeah. saying. But...
1: Exactly. Right. This isn't going to keep you from making mistakes. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. not. And in fact, that's that's the approach that I take when when I'm first starting out on a team, too, is... Uh, we're still going to go through the QA cycle and everything. The QA testers are still going to find issues. But the big thing that you want to change right now in the beginning, you have no test coverage, right? You have no test. Whenever the tester finds an issue, you go and reproduce that in an automated yeah, test. Definitely. And you follow that TDD, you know, red-green refactor, start out with a red-broken test, you know, get it passing and then go and refactor the code. And you follow that just for the, that, that QA, that bug, that QA found. And so it's, it's, it's pretty specific, but guess what? You're guaranteed that you're never going to run into that specific bug, right? You're literally guaranteed not to have that, that regression again. Um, And that also, that helps you just slowly kind of get into, you know, automated testing in general, build up your suite, all of this stuff. And then, then later on, once you get a little more down the road, you can decide what to do with those tests. Do you just throw them away because they were kind of a means to an end? But those, that's that was something that you screwed up in the yeah. past, right? There was probably a reason that you screwed it up, and maybe they're worth just keeping around just to make sure you don't screw that up again. And so, you know, I, I feel that approach really kind of helps out uh, for teams getting started, in particular. Maybe not more mature teams, you know, teams who are really getting automated testing, but definitely getting started. Because it helps you just go through the motions, right? It helps you learn the tools. It just helps you learn the whole kind of ecosystem. It also
2: gives you buy-in, right? You're seeing value. Because when you start writing a bunch of tests at the beginning, right. sometimes right. it's hard to quantify the yeah. value. But you're like, yep. hey, yep. like you just said, the idea that I need to reproduce this bug, what is the hardest thing we try to do a lot of times? We can't reproduce it. By going through that process, we might start discovering things and go, oh, now I understand why this is an issue. Right, I'm not just clicking a bunch of buttons and hoping I find a scenario.
1: So, speaking of of tools, uh, what what tools do you guys use to 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 do automated testing? I mean, do you have any just just a real lightning round? Just kind of throw out throw out the throw out some names of tools or whatever. And are, do you use different tools for you know web development versus you know server side NET development? Do you, do you test your database code? Just kind of open ended yeah. for the C sharp stuff. I've pretty much gravitated to XUnit.
0: I I like to make things work in the IDE. If you're going to use an IDE like Visual Studio, then I want the tool to be sharp. If you're not going to like, then okay, then maybe it doesn't have, maybe it can be this conglomeration of
1: build chain or something.
0: But I've kind of gravitated to XUnit and a little bit away from the MS test stuff. Although I'm not opposed to it. I'm kind of opposed to it.
1: <laughs> the MS test I mean,
0: stuff. I, it depends. Like I'm not going to,
2: it's better than nothing.
0: I mean, I'd like to try out some of the the behavior-driven stuff with, like, the Gherkin syntax just to see if it provides value. I don't
1: know. I don't know. I'd like to. I think it's an interesting idea. I'm I'm exactly in the same place. Like, I love the idea. I've never actually done it. Just because I've spent (laughs) pretty much my entire career, I've spent introducing teams to automated testing. And that's, like, that's 300 level. You know, that is, like, years down the road, like you need to really understand how to write a unit test first and then an acceptance test right. before you even get to like this, this, this whole test yeah, driven. Dependency yeah, approach. Yeah.
2: <laughs> For me, I, I've, I've tried some, I think it's Q units, one of the, the ones that's yeah, popular, Jasmine. but I've found myself, I wouldn't say avoiding it, but only using it in very key areas. Um, and that's just because I, I'm not still sold on the whole idea of testing UI through automation. I'm still very skeptical, personally.
1: I think what's really crucial there is is it's called under the glass testing, right? So you're not you're not all, so when people think of automated testing on the UI, they're literally thinking about writing like a Selenium script. Selenium being a right. browser yeah. Brou- yeah. browser automation that literally clicks a button, right? It's automating button clicks. But what 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 I like to do is that the under the glass, below the glass automation, where you are basically calling the method so you're calling code directly that that button click would have called
2: or again if you're writing a lot of business rules in javascript it's important to if you're doing a calculation or something yeah you need the same level of unit test you would have needed you've done in c sharp
1: yeah
0: so in that case are you striving for my views essentially are just one layer above static like they're that dumb such that by testing the underlying logic i i get about as close as possible to testing the views yeah i've tried that strategy too yeah
1: the the standard kind of jQuery code of you know when you click this then it toggles this CSS class on this other DOM element I don't I couldn't care less about that from, from the under the glass approach right yeah, I, understand I care that when I click submit on the form it builds the form correctly and it submits it to the server right through an AJAX call and I care about the contents of that AJAX payload that's what I really care about or
2: instead of validation or something has to fire you want to validate yes the validation fires in the way you expect it to. You don't yeah, necessarily right. care that the button became disabled. That's right. important too, but that's not, that's the, the 80-20 rule. That's the 20%. You want to focus on that exactly. 80%.
1: Exactly. Right. And th- then I might top it all off with a couple, with a handful of Selenium scripts. Yeah. Right. Then I'll also test that button with a button click on the form automated with Selenium. Yeah, definitely. But that's going to be, I'm going to have one Selenium test for every 10 or maybe even every hundred of the under the glass testing where I'm actually calling the method.
2: When we start talking about testing UI elements... I think there you get a a false positive. When you work with something and we use the button, as an example, the button being disabled, right? You can test, right? I call code that disables the button. It adds the CSS class that's disabled. But what's more important is what is the trigger of those disabled, right? When when I go to save the screen, the button needs to be disabled. Or when the search happens, the button needs to be, those are more important to me than the fact that I can physically write a class and change the DOM element, right? I'm trusting the web browser works.
1: Yeah, well, and to kind of rephrase that, it's the UI test, or the automated test, the Selenium test end up being very flaky. Right, they, because they end up being very dependent on kind of the layout of the UI and everything, right? So unless you're literally giving an ID, a hard-coded ID to every element just so you can find it, which <laughs> I guess some people do, but that's just not practical. And I certainly hate it. I think it's a bad practice. Yeah, it, right. you know, it, the only reason I would do it is, yeah. is to find it easily it, for my It opens people up test. to doing bad things. <laughs> you exactly. Bad it encourages you to do bad things. So assuming you're not doing that, your automated test in order to to discover that that button that you need to click you end up doing like an xpath query or a css class query that assumes a certain hierarchy in your page and that's very brittle that is your ui layout yeah. yeah and so if you go and redesign the page then now you have to rewrite all those tests even though the functionality is exactly the same you know you move the button from three levels deep to you know some sibling element over uh, two levels up and now it functions exactly the same. It may even look pretty yeah. much the same, but you know your tests are now yeah. all broken because you're adding a couple new buttons. All of a sudden, it's anymore. the
2: fourth button in the list instead of the third or something. You get very exactly specific right. to the right. They get the flaky. Tab order and things like that. Yep. So yeah,
1: and that's also that's something you need to keep in mind, right? So make make your queries yeah. and stuff so that they're not as flaky, but they're still yeah. going to be flaky. As, much, as hard as you try, it's still inherently. I think flaky. we'll
2: agree that those. If in the perfect world you would do those kind of things. But there are those are the perfect example of things that are very brittle. That if something if a test is gonna be brittle, it may not be the right test to write. You may you maybe should focus yeah. on something else yeah. that will give that's less brittle and less um likely to change because the end user is like, you know, I'm really great if the buttons are right up top instead of the bottom. Because that's not really that's functionality, but it's not functionality. <laughs> it's not business functionality.
1: I think that goes back to the it's basically you're talking about ROI, right? That that that's the yeah. point that you keep coming back to. This whole episode is that you know focus on the stuff that's the real ROI that that your users really care about. I think that is a good rule of thumb. I may have sound <laughs> like I was arguing with that earlier, but I, I definitely that, that, think that's that the right term. Good... Too.
2: That was actually the right term because I was that wasn't quantifying it right. But no, return on investment, right? I and mean, every time you write a line of code, yeah, you should be doing the same thing. Why am I writing this line of code? What is the value it's providing?
1: And they, these tests are an investment and they need to give you value. And if they're not, then, you know, either do them differently. So they are, yeah. or don't write them. That's cause... definitely
2: a thing too. People don't be afraid to refactor your tests. Tests can keep changing too. You no,
0: know, the tests are code. That's the thing. And I yeah. think a lot of people just kind of get the test out and say, okay, the test is I'm now in stone, those. but that's not true. The test is not in stone.
1: Yes. <laughs> so how do you, how do you guys handle database integration? Anything there? I mean, do you, do you test it? Do you do you test your stored procedures with automated tests or anything like that? I think we should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great answer.
0: I think it's really hard, especially especially when you're talking about SQL Server objects. Let's just I mean, you know, most of our listeners probably use SQL Server. So if you're talking stored procedures or even things like triggers or functions, I mean, hey, do, do you even use those? It's hard. And I think part of it is because I don't I don't think that SQL Server itself lends itself to this without you kind of doing a bunch of work and there's no community that's built that support up uh, at least if there is yeah i'm not aware of it but that doesn't mean i know either i actually think that was that led to the rise of orms i really do because then now you you've turned it into yeah. code and we developers are good at testing code <laughs> yeah well, so we said well let's the just kind of take a yeah, let's yep. just take it out of the database because we can test yeah. it that way. I, I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think it was, I think it really had an impact.
2: I think it'd come down to the, the the friction, right? It was hard to work with testing databases. So, hey, we have this syncore ORI, ORM, and then a lot of people don't even have a clue what the hell that is, which is yeah, another yeah, right, problem. Yeah,
0: we just said, right? I guess for most people, that that's synonymous with Entity Framework
2: yeah now nowadays yes. it is. yeah so, you know I, I think we <laughs> yeah. talk about databases. there's a couple different problems, usually, and I, I think this is more of a human being problem than a technical problem. There's no technical reason we couldn't unit test databases, right It's a little yeah. harder, right um particularly because you probably almost have to have like an empty database to start with, then you have to set up the database a certain way so that when you make a change, it you can easily identify the change for most developers they usually don't have access to the database to make those level of changes. They might even have access to add new store procs and things. The other problem is a lot of times when you run into scenarios, particularly with bugs and things, you need almost the production data or something that's very similar. Because all of a sudden you have this perfect developer database, right? The happy day database, but it's a happy day database. You don't even see the bugs that are out there until people start using the system. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute. You never put your yeah. middle name in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we always thought there'd be a middle name. I'm using that as an example, but there's all of a sudden there are things that the, the database would allow them to do that no human being would ever think of from a development point of view. I've run all kinds of cases where the users end up coming up with stuff with just entering certain data in that breaks the system.
0: Yeah, we're not very good at testing the sad <laughs> path, as I like to call it, or even yeah, yeah, we're always with the happy path. And and I actually think some of it is is our inability, I sometimes as humans, to from the outset constrain what users can do. We Mm -hmm. we very much want to let them do whatever. And we don't stop to say, no, maybe we really should have a maximum name field. And of course (laughs) someone will come running and say, but, but, but there are certain cultures where the last name could be well Mm -hmm. over 30 characters. Okay. Well, we've got to pick something and we'll go with it. And when it doesn't work anymore, we'll change it.
2: It's okay to change it.
0: (laughs) But too often, Instead, the answer is just go varchar max. That way it can never be a problem. But now you've introduced other problems. Your web layer can't do that. Your API layer can't handle that. So now you have an incongruency that that you're broken from day one. You needed to go ahead and set that constraint as part of a test. Well, obviously, as part of your test suite and let it flow through your whole system. And then when it's not the right constraint, you can change it.
1: Well, is that something you test then? Or is that a constraint on the database field, right? That you just kind of set once and then you are guaranteed that it never happens.
0: Are you? I mean, okay, so so then let's say you set the constraint and then I go ahead and send 35 characters to the API. Does the API have logic for handling that? What's the right thing to do? Cut it off? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, right? We need to define yeah. that. We can't, I don't know is the wrong answer. It's the answer I have right this second, but the business yeah, needs to define right. something. I, I mean, when I was a kid, and I took those standardized tests where we filled out our names in bubbles. Yeah. For my entire you know, uh, elementary school life, my name was Chris Topp right. because that was as far <laughs> yeah. as it went. It stopped yeah. there. It was C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P and that was it. I couldn't fill out any yeah. more bubbles. And you know what? They just left that constraint yep. in there. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and no one ever had a problem figuring out that that was my standardized test.
2: So was that more because it was the mainframe they couldn't do? Why'd you
0: get? Oh, look,
2: <laughs> do long names.
0: <laughs> I don't know what the real reason was. All I know is they allowed that constraint to exist. Yeah, it probably still exists today. <laughs> it might because I still get a lot of mail that cuts my first name off, and I don't. I, mean, I have a common first <laughs> oh, name. Yeah. This is not. Yeah. This is not an unusual name.
1: That's my dad's name is Christopher. I, I've seen the same thing, Christoph. Yeah.
0: So yeah. they just you know they. As dumb as this might sound, the constraint was fine. Yeah. Nobody ever had a problem figuring out which test was mine. Yeah.
1: Well, and mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the tests end up being documentation, right? So it's uh, it, it's not saying whether it's right or not. It's just this is how the system works today.
2: It's the behavior of the system. It,
1: yeah. This test is going to run every time, and it's going to validate that this is the, how the, the system behaves, right? Not that it's correct, just that somebody wrote this test to assert that the behavior is this, and that's what we've documented. And, you know, if, if the requirement comes along that it should be something else, well, then this test is going to fail if we change that code. But that, that's, that's correct at that point because it's validating an incorrect uh, business requirement, right? But it's, so what's it's documenting it at least. What's
0: every time? Do you run this suite of tests on compile? <laughs> on build? No, oh, oh, that was another up. <laughs> yep. Is that another show? Am I? <laughs> yeah, you know, see
1: here, I thought we were wrapping up the show, yeah, coming sorry. up on an hour. That's okay, and hey, hey, it looks it's for a huge topic.
0: Show. We can talk about it another time.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I've got a quick answer, right? So that's why I stress unit tests because unit tests test things in isolation. They are fast. I have a whole set of criteria. Sure, it be fast, but you know, the the biggest thing is that they're fast. And I need them to be fast so that developers will run them as, as often as possible because a test that is not run is worthless. It may as well not exist. Right. And so, yeah. When do you run your test as often as possible?
0: I'd love to talk to you about like, what, what do you do if the suite gets too big and, and and we can do it another, I I think that sounds like a great topic. Like if we moved into continuous integration, you know, that would be like a whole
1: show there. Well, no. So, but it, it shouldn't matter. Right. So it, it, when you when you do true unit tests, they should be as quick as you you should be able to do thousands, tens of thousands of them in you know a couple of oh, seconds. yeah. I'm, I'm not convinced
0: that the suite would ever actually get that big. I think a lot of times when the suite gets that big, it's because you've actually got integration tests. Exactly right, there. and I'll yeah, even go I so think far. That's
1: true. I'll even go so far as if, if you have a, a test that's testing a set of logic. Um, that is slow. Like it may meet every other criteria of a unit test, meaning it's isolated. It doesn't test the integration with any other components, all of that stuff, but it's slow just because it does really complex stuff. I would actually exclude that. I would promote that to something else. You know, I call it an integration test just to be simple, but I would get that out of my unit test suite that's run all the time just so that you can get that immediate feedback because that's the most important thing. And so I've actually been on teams where developers, really, really anal developers, (laughs) I haven't seen this often, but developers will literally like write a line of code, like make a single change, run the full suite of tests, right? These are guys who are just really just they 're really scared of breaking anything, and they 're really leveraging that unit test suite, but well, then
0: you should buy them all nrunnch right, well <laughs> right,
1: so and those are the tools, so going back to tools, those are my favorite tools, so forget yeah. about the my favorite unit test framework or or you know in the on JavaScript or C sharp or whatever. My yeah. favorite tools are the tools that i don 't even have to think about it it 's literally just running in the background all the right. time,
0: and for the listeners, like is, it runs your test continuously, so you get green dots on the screen and they and it, in visual studio you get green dots for every test and every line of code that's tested and when a line of code is now causing a test to fail the dot turns red
1: yeah it's interesting that that actually tells Visual very Studio you can turn on there's a there's a there's a setting it's not in the um in the lowest one but i think it's in the second highest one whatever the professional what's what's the lowest one professional well, like premium i guess knowledge. is the next mm-hmm. one so in premium it's a toggle where you go, if you go into the test explorer and you hit that little that play button. It's a toggle, and what that does is every time you compile, it will run all of your tests.
0: Well, yeah, and then it puts right, it, so it puts don't... the results in Code Lens, right? And then right. it puts the results right. in Code. And that's lens. pretty yeah, and good it does too. Exactly yeah, because I mean, I've used that. I was just saying, like, Ncrunch is even more instant than yep, compile. Same it's thing. Like as you type. Yep. But that has. Yeah. And I don't want to dog uncrunch that the person who works on that has done amazing work to be honest, but yeah. it does. Sometimes you've it, seen it cost your computer sure. <laughs> trying sure. to do well, that continuously. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, that's why I found the, the run test on compile to be a good uh, middle ground. Yeah. Right. You can wait until I want to compile. Yeah. I, you can assume that when I'm compiling, I'm I'm done my train of thought. Yeah. And it's, it's, we it's we need to, a, when I
2: drink it. coffee, run this
1: thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> But that's what – that. how often? That's my ideal is literally every time you compile. Um, certainly, you know, every time that you check in before you check in yes. to make sure that you're – And you after know, you, you check in, anything, rerun them
2: because you get other people's code in, ap- integrating into the process. Well, right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely bu- do it on the build server after you check in. So do it off of your machine, yes. you know. That's that's crucial. Those are the times. And so it's, it's, it's as frequently as possible. Because going along with that, I say check in as, yeah. off, after, as often as possible.
2: Well, it gets <laughs> back to your original point about being done, right? When you say you're done, yeah, you should have yep. a test criteria. The test should all be working yep, and not skipped. Yep. Yeah, Unless you have certain cases where it makes sense to be skipped. But then those should be rare. Those should be the, the rare exception.
1: Exactly. So when I say show me the test working, I mean, let me get it on my machine, you know, pull yep. it from source control onto my machine and then run the test on my machine. That's what I mean by see the test working. Right. Yeah. And then that's the baseline. And then we can start the conversation and, and go to the next step of code review and everything. So speaking of code review, quality, all this stuff, who, who is ultimately responsible for the, the quality of the system, making sure that it works? Is it the QA testers? Or is it no, developers? it should be
2: everyone, anyone involved. The whole team. It should be the whole team is successful or the whole team is fails.
1: I've just historically in my career just seen the the attitude just everywhere. I mean, it's prolific where the developers just write enough code that it they can say that they're done, and then they throw it over the wall to the testers, and it's up to the testers to make sure that crap doesn't get into. Yeah, crime. I totally and, disagree with that. And the problem I have a lot of problems there. One is is that.
0: In a short amount of time, it becomes dev versus QA in a short amount of time. And secondly, let's yep. be honest, how can QA possibly know? They don't necessarily have all the details. Yep. They don't necessarily have access to all the documentation or even to what was inside your brain when you wrote the code.
2: And a lot of places, QA is yep. actually the people. Like, I mean, I consult, we actually try to have the end users QA this. Oh, well, that would be awesome. They're, that, because they're ultimately the people who need to use it. And that's a lot of times simply because a lot of places do not have QA or if they do have QA people, they're fully booked. So that, and ultimately, that, the place that I've seen where QA is done right, we've actually had the QA write the funks back because ultimately they're testing it, right? So they should be contributing to the whole process. They're just not the people that click the buttons at the end of the project. Yeah, They need right. to be integrated into the whole process.
1: Well, I, honestly, I think that uh, QA... QA testers, their their opinion is very valued. I, I, don't, I don't really see an issue with them taking, you know, this this system doesn't act the way that I would expect it to, right? I'm raising that as a, as an issue. I'm raising that as a, quote, bug, right? It's not a logical bug. It's not that it was implemented improperly or that it failed a spec that was documented. It's just that, like, I expected something else and it didn't work that way, and I'm raising that up because QA testers, I think as a whole at a high level, are the voice of the customer. That's who they represent. In that case,
0: they're stakeholders, if you ask me. They're stakeholders. I I don't think we classify them correctly sometimes. I'm not saying every organization. but In
2: too many organizations, it's us versus them.
0: Yeah, if they're serving that role for you, which I think is a good role, really, because we don't always have access to the customer. So you you use the words that I, you sitting as the customer, I think that's what you said. Um, Then in that case, I I consider them stakeholders. And Mm -hmm. I want you at... Review sessions, whether that's sprint review or not, you're still reviewing with someone. I want you there and I want you telling me why what we did was wrong and how uh, it's never going to work for the actual end user. And sorry, you know, it sucks. Nobody wants to be told that their their baby's ugly, right? But (laughs) it's wrong and you need to fix it before (laughs) we lose a lot of money.
2: Yeah. Where I've always thought of is I'd rather have the QA person find the problem yeah. than the end user, the guy using sure. it in production. Sure. It's gonna be a whole lot of hard, harder to deal with that in production than fixing a bug report.
1: Yeah, and uh so I think that's a show. So you listener, what is your experience with automated testing? Uh do you use it all the time? Are you one of those folks where, you know, you don't write a line of code without without a test to validate it? Um, have you tried it at all? I mean, are, are you, uh, just interested in, in trying it? You know, it's something you've heard about, uh, or, or just somewhere in between, you know, have you tried it out a little bit? It might've worked for you. It might've not. We'd love to hear what you think. We'd love to hear about your experiences. Please leave a comment on the website, staticvoidpodcast.com or send an email to comments at staticvoidpodcast.com Uh, And as always, if you have a topic that you'd like us to discuss on the show, please feel free to let us know through those same channels. We want to make sure that we're talking about the things that you want to hear about. So, Chris, Todd, thanks for the chat. Thank you. Yep, it was awesome. And thank you, listener, for spending the time with us. We hope that you enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you next time on the Static Void Podcast.